Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. If you've ever eaten in a Roman restaurant, and maybe even if you haven't, you'll have come across carciofi alla Judea, artichokes Jewish style. They're deep-fried, crispy, and delicious, and they've spread far and wide outside the old Roman ghetto. So what is it that makes this particular dish Jewish? And what about other Jewish food in Rome? To help me, two experts. My name is Micaela Pavoncello, which I know it doesn't sound Jewish, but it's a very, very old Jewish name, which means little peacock. And uh, I'm a tour guide. I am a member of the Jewish community of Rome. I'm a mother of three boys. So cooking, uh, it's part of my daily life. My name is Sean Wire. I'm doing a PhD in Italian studies at the University of California, Berkeley. In the last couple of years, I've been studying Jewish Roman cuisine. And I spent three months last year interviewing people uh, hanging out in Rome's former ghetto, for want of a better phrase, thinking about how this area has changed in the last couple of decades. A tour guide steeped in the Roman Jewish community and an academic casting a dispassionate eye on the former ghetto. So back to my original question. What is it about a fried artichoke that makes it Jewish? Artichokes were racing, were growing wild. And when you deep fry, even a shoe, it's good. That's what is Jewish about the fried artichoke, that it was a nothing that with a geniality, like deep frying the artichoke, peeling it in a way that there's no waste, that you get rid of the hard leaves, the ones that you would, anyway, when you steam it, you eat only the white part. Well, we eat much more than the white part besides of the heart of the artichoke, because when you fry, the leaves opens up and they become like crispy chips. And that's a way you've never tried the artichokes before. So that's what is also very interesting, approaching an ingredient and eat it in a completely different version, which is much more exciting. Well, Judea has become this sort of emblem or symbol of Jewish Roman cuisine precisely because it has this label. And Massimo Montanari has this theory, um, dish a dish acquires its name because it leaves the neighborhood of origin. So Carciofo alla Judea would never have been called that if it had remained in the former ghetto because it would have just been, you know, if, you're, if you live in Jewish Rome, it's just an artichoke for you. So it acquires this name because it acquired Rome-wide fame. Of course, that doesn't explain why the other most popular artichoke is Carciofo alla Romano, all over Rome and not just in the ghetto. But that's a quibble. Despite the fact that Carciofo alla Judea is not confined to the ghetto anymore, all food in the ghetto has seen amazing change over the past 20 or 30 years. When I was a child, there was one kosher restaurant. I'm 47, so I think I really... And I started my business as a tour guide of the Jewish, uh, of the Jewish history of Rome, 22 years ago. So in the last 20 years, I saw a tremendous change. He has a couple of very old restaurants. I think I've counted four that have been there for, for over 90 years and they're very classic Roman restaurants. 
one of them was historically Jewish owned, but by and large, they build themselves as being classic Roman restaurants. From one kosher, then we got two, then three, then five, then seven, and now there are 20 kosher realities in, in, the, in one main street. Uh, they can go from Oriental, Israeli, Lafa Falafel, Libyan, typical Roman Jewish, uh, Eastern European. It's this change that Sean Weyer has been studying. He's just published a paper about the foodification of the ghetto, in quotation marks, a term I had never heard before. It's an interesting term because it started off as so many food trends in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and there was an article in 2010 that was written by Kristen Brown, which describes the foodification of Brooklyn, uh, which she actually describes it as food-led gentrification. In academia, it seems to be particularly Italian scholars that have grabbed hold of this idea of foodification because there are so many Italian cities where it seems to describe a neighborhood perfectly. You know, the, the former ghetto in Rome used to have a number of uh, non-food-related commercial businesses, th particularly things like textile businesses. But also it was a kind of, it was a classic, it was a neighborhood high street in the sense that overwhelmingly now it's become a restaurant-led commercial space, yeah. really. So what's the difference between foodification and just gentrification? Interesting question, because I think in early on when foodification was was coined, they were they were seen as synonymous. But gentrification, if we're to be sort of specific and take the sociological definition of gentrification, really describes the displacement of people, the displacement of residents. So it's the, a neighbourhood becoming too expensive for the people who historically have lived there, and they're forced out, basically. And of course, foodification and gentrification can come together, and foodification creates what some scholars have called a displacement atmosphere. So it makes a neighbourhood attractive for gentrification. You know, if you, if you are a rich Roman or a rich uh, non-Roman looking to invest in Roman buy property there, this neighbourhood, which once was a working class neighbourhood, relatively poor, despite being very central, once it starts to have all these lovely restaurants, and of course it's pedestrianised now, the Via del Portico d'Ottavia, um, it becomes a much more attractive place for people who might, decades ago, have sort of looked at it and thought, well, that's not really for me. Looking back, it's important to note that Jews have been in Rome since well before the start of the Christian era. The Jewish community of Rome, it's a unique community because we came straight from Jerusalem before even Christ was born to ask protection to the Romans against that Syrian king who had conquered Judea and wanted to impose his pagan culture and its own cult. So we decided to send ambassadors to Rome to ask protection to the Romans against the Greeks. And then we never left because, you know, Rome could offer us great chances to start a new life with the, the harbour of Ostia. We could speak Greek. We could establish connections with other Jewish communities of the Mediterranean. So we found a great place. And so we were actually even protected. And it's not so common in the history of the Jews. And we were protected by the great Julius Caesar, 
who made specific rules to make sure that we could celebrate our holidays, keep our rules, gather in synagogue, build synagogues. And not all these things have always been granted. And so that made possible the growing of a community. Jews at that time in Rome got to the huge number of 10,000 when Rome was a city of 1 million citizens. Today, there are 13,000 Jews in a city of 3 to 4 million. But if things were okay during the Roman Republic and Empire, they started to go downhill after Constantine made Christianity the empire's official religion in the 5th century. And they got really bad under Pope Paul IV, in 1555. Although there'd been a Jewish quarter before, he confined them to a walled ghetto with a single gate that was closed at sundown. He forced them to wear a distinctive yellow hat, and he destroyed seven of the eight Jewish synagogues. The ghetto was packed tight with Jews, and it was right on the banks of the Tiber, so it flooded every winter. By the end of his four-year reign, the number of Jews in Rome had halved. The aim of the Pope, Paul IV, when he established the ghetto, was not killing them. He used a theological uh, kind of um, exception. He couldn't kill the Jews. He had to keep them alive as an example not to be followed. And so by giving them a hard time with with the ghetto and giving them rules to obey... He was hoping that we would choose to give up and convert into Christians and therefore get our souls saved. Because, you know, if you're not baptized, you go to hell. A dozen popes later, it was the turn of Urban VIII. Now, he was responsible for much of the work that made Rome as beautiful as it is. But he also picked up from where Paul IV left off. From an uh, an anti-Semitic point of view, he was one of the worst. Imagine that during uh, his papacy, even though Jews were living and working in a fish market, uh, the former Portico di Ottavia, a beautiful uh, imperial building from the time of Augustus, uh, well, if you deal with fish, uh, you might get the best fishes for you, for your family, right? No, Jews were not allowed, even though they were in the fish business, to have for themselves big fishes. Well, not suddenly, but over a period of decades, something that was historically a sort of marker of poverty, this l'arte di arrangiarsi, right? The, the art of getting by. You take these various cheap ingredients and you find some way of putting them together and cooking them so that they make something tasty and nutritious. So we ended up having only anchovies and sardines. Now, besides, I don't think the Pope knew about the omega-3 that it's preserved in the anchovies. Because if he knew, we would not be able to eat those either. And that's anchovies and sardines, Mediterranean fish, you know, the poor fish. It's part of our culture. It's part of our... We have a famous uh, anchovies and endive pie. It's not really a pie. It's just layer of endive, which is a very bitter salad that nobody likes, in layers with fresh anchovies without spine or head, good amount of olive oil, salt and pepper, several layers of this food, bake it in the oven, and everything tastes great. The wrong, the beer and, and dive that becomes so crunchy and black and burnt. You mentioned the endive, escarole, um, and there's the 
escarol with pine nuts and raisins bravissimo, as well. Bravissimo, bravissimo. Yes, yes. Because the escarol is very bitter again. But if you put raisin and pine nuts, uh, it's, uh, and you saute. I think that this saute thing, it's, it's typical of people who have not, nothing to eat. For example, chicory. Chicory, you can't find it anywhere else than Rome. Chicory was, a, again, a wild grass that generally it's good for cows and horses. I remember I used to have a Romanian maid that used to come. And when I used to go to the market bringing huge plastic bags full of chicory, she would go watch around and say, where are the horses? <laughs> and I would say, no, this is for us. We steam it and then we put it in a pan with garlic, good amount of olive oil, chili, and then everything tastes good. And that would be Cicoria ripassata, which, like artichokes, is found everywhere in Rome. Most people probably don't think of it as Jewish. So are there other foods typical of Roman cooking that people maybe don't realize are Jewish? First of all, whatever has raisin and pine nuts, it comes from the Sephardi Jews, from the Jews who escaped from Portugal and Spain after the 1492 expulsion, some of them came straight to Rome. Some stopped by in the south of Italy that still belonged to Spain to be kicked out a few years later. And so a lot of these ingredients, sweet and sour with pine nuts raisin, they are definitely of Jewish origins and they were taken to Rome as well. Again, the frying, the concept of frying, it's typically Jewish because in Rome, Christians were using the fat, strutto, Yes. And for us, this would be, first of all, completely impossible for our, you know, kasherut rules. But also, we cannot mix milk and meat. So not even butter would be a solution for us. So that's why olive oil. Because we would also cook uh, apples fried. So I'm imagining these ladies going to Campo de Fiori at the end of the day. You know, the Jewish ladies going out from the ghetto... It was allowed from morning to sunset. So I imagine them going at the end of the day when everything is cheap or there are leftover, chopping all this thing and just deep frying them, whatever was friable. And then another thing that it's typically Jewish um, is definitely the interiors, the offal, brain, uh, tongue, cheeks, but this is all over the Jewish world because probably they were considered the, last, the least noble parts of the beef, il quinto quarto. And we, we had a monopoly of the quinto quarto. So if you come to the Jewish quarter today, it's not uncommon to see people that eat brain fried with artichokes. I grew up with that. And that too can be found quite as easily as those carciofi alla Judea, in lots of Roman restaurants. In fact, most of the foods and techniques that Michaela mentioned are familiar right across Rome. Which, for me, raises another question. Who eats in the ghetto? The clientele is a real, real mixture. That's one of the things that makes it a very interesting place to study. Because you do certainly have tourists to tourists to Rome in general will will go at, go there. The Lonely Planet, for example, directs first time tourists to go and eat in in the ghetto to eat the Jewish Romans specialities in the ghetto. Listen, I cannot stand when I see I'm coming to Rome. I, I was told that I have to uh, to go to see the Jewish Quarter, the Jewish Museum. No, just go there to eat, and these. 
the experience cannot prescind from the historical context. You, you will not appreciate in the same way if you go just to eat in the Jewish quarter because you're, gonna, you're not going to understand what is, the, what is what you're eating because that's, he, he is in centuries of history of, 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 of finding solution to limitations. Of course, Jewish tourists, observant Jewish tourists, are on the lookout for kosher food not an especially uh, simple thing to find. And then, of course, there are locals. So for, there's, a, there's a perception in Rome, I think, which is quite strong, uh, that the former ghetto, because it was historically an enclosed neighbourhood, because it has a strong sense of local character, is a kind of... It's perceived as a, as a sort of time capsule of Rome as it once was. So you hear people say, well, you know, if you want to eat the real traditional Roman cuisine before it was affected by X, Y, and Z. What you have to do is go to the ghetto and eat there. So you have met plenty of Romans who go, who go precisely on the lookout for traditional Roman cuisine that look, look to this area. And is there any sense in which um, ordinary Romans, other Italians maybe visiting Rome, are going to the ghetto in a sense to eat ethnic food, like I might go in London to Southall to, to eat Indian food. It's complicated because the old Jewish Roman tradition is seen as absolutely Romanesco. So people are going for that kind of cuisine, things like aliciotti con l'indivia, of course, the, the famous carciofo alla Giudia. These kind of old dishes are seen not as exotic or quote-unquote ethnic food, um, but rather they're seen as hyper-local Roman dishes. That's mm. then complicated, though, by the fact that the restaurants in the former ghetto have a real mixture. Many of these restaurants have almost two halves of the menu. Sometimes they're literally separated out into something like cucina della tradizione romana, cuisine of the Roman tradition. And then you have sort of what what one might call a modern Jewish cuisine side of the menu, which is very similar to what one might get in an Ottolenghi restaurant in London, or indeed somewhere like the Marais in Paris, um, which is predominantly, though not entirely, sort of Mizrahi, as in Middle Eastern Jewish cuisine. Things like falafel, which really aren't part of the historic Roman Jewish tradition at all. And those dishes, I think, do have a slight... do have a... A, a certain appeal for Italians. There's something slightly different, you know. It's, mm. it's equivalent, perhaps, or similar to going out for sushi. Of course, a lot of the old traditional Roman dishes were never available to the Jews because of the restrictions surrounding kosher foods. And one of the other things that's changed in the ghetto is that versions of those dishes are now on offer. One of the really interesting case studies that I picked up on was the carbonara, because, of course, you go to Rome looking for what has become sort of the symbolic Roman dish, the carbonara, particularly the Roman dish that has acquired fame outside the city. But, of course, this is really off bounds for so many reasons for an observant Jew. It, it has pork in it, but also it mixes cheese and meat. So you have various versions. One of them involves... If you're the kind of person who turns incandescent with rage when you hear about, quote, inauthentic, unquote, adaptations of things like carbonara, better skip ahead now. 
So you have various versions. One of them involves using dried meat other than pork. So dried beef, for example, which can be kind of smoked to recreate that kind of guanciale-like flavor. Of, it's, in, it's in the right ballpark. And of course, if you cook it without cheese, that can be made kosher quite simply. There is also the, the, the use, which I find very interesting, of the crispy leaves of the carciofola judea, which of course have been salted. And they sort of recreate that texture, particularly of, of well-cooked guanciale when it's crunchy. Um, so you can use that even to make a sort of vegetarian approximate. People get very, um, people get quite protective when you call something that isn't rigorously a carbonara a carbonara. But this is also a way of opening this dish up to new audiences. So I think it's a, it's a dynamic and interesting thing to observe. And how about pizza? Mm. Pizza is another really uh, intriguing question in the formaghetto because theoretically it should be a relatively easy thing to to make kosher. There is there are plenty of ways of making kosher cheese, but up until the eighties uh, and nineties, one of the very few kosher businesses in the formaghetto was a pizzeria. Um, but it was a pizzeria which was uh, so Jewish restaurant uh, kosher restaurants often choose to be completely. Uh, dairy-based or completely meat-based in order to kind of completely avoid any overlap between the two. So this was a pizzeria that was kosher, but it was uh, it was meat-based. So there was no cheese on the pizza, which, of course, I mean, many of my interviewees in the former ghetto said, well, this is just completely absurd because... And I think part of the, part of the reasoning behind that was because they were kosher butchers in, and there have been for, for centuries in Rome, uh, but kosher cheese production, you know, rigorously um, certified kosher cheese production is a, is, a, is a very new thing in contemporary Italy. And so, you know, the, it took uh, Jewish Roman entrepreneurs f- spotting this gap and actually calling up cheese producers and saying, you know, can, for, on one day a week, can we come and use some of your production to make kosher cheese and very very gradually this has developed into an industry and now there is a kosher pizzeria in the formaghetto that does do cheese topped pizzas and of course there's there's there are plenty of restaurants that do too i i I said i'd not heard of the term foodification and and (laughs) there are a couple of other terms in your in your paper that i (laughs) hadn't come across one was gastronomization and gourmetization. And and I'm I'm just wondering, I mean, what's that all about? Is is this just sort of pseudo-academic speak? Um, I I don't think so, no. I think, um, I mean, gourmetization is, is essentially the process of something that was historically not considered gourmet, as in not considered high cuisine, uh, something, you know, something that might have used historically not particularly well-regarded ingredients. And there are plenty of Roman examples of this. I mean, plen- lots of the Roman dishes use the quinto quarto, as we know, this sort of historically very cheap cuts of meat. And yet now they've become sought after right it's no longer the case that people look down 
or you know certainly foodies it's no longer the case that foodies look down on things like tripe and in fact people are now hunting up and down the city looking for the best tripa romana the best payata things that in the mid 20th century would have been seen as reminders of rome's historic poverty so i think uh I think gourmetization is quite a useful term to describe that process. It's quite neat. But yeah, it is it is of course it it has it has anything with an Asian in it does have a sort of academic twang to it. <laughs> and if you think about it, gourmetization is exactly what's happened to the traditional Jewish food of Rome and many other cuisines. Sean Wire mentioned the fact that there are now different kinds of Jewish food available, thanks, for example, to the influx of Libyan Jews in 1967. In fact, Michaela's own mother is from Libya. But when I asked her if Jewish food was changing, she was adamant. No, it's not changing. It's just adding more uh, gastronomic experiences. But uh, you will never change the stracotto. The stracotto, which is our cholent, uh, will never be cooked uh, with cumin because of the Libyans. No, the stracotto stays the stracotto. And the Libyans keep doing all those dishes with their spices uh, and nothing has changed. Because for the Jews, food... Uh, it's the smell of the, the aroma of some dishes. It's just a memory that connects generations of generations of people. So you don't want to change those recipes. You have some, I have for some recipes, like a reverential respect. That's not exclusive to Roman Jewish cuisine, of course. And they're both right. Traditional Roman Jewish cuisine is staying more or less as it was. But Jewish food is expanding to take in other kinds of traditions. In their different ways, Michaela Pavancello and Sean Weyer have both seen the foodification of the Roman ghetto firsthand. Sean's more academic study amplifies Michaela's lived experience. So after more than 2,000 years of unbroken history in Rome, with all the changes that have taken place over that time, what of the future for foodification? In terms of real estate, almost, it can't go a great deal further. There are a few non-food businesses still in the ghetto. It's a relatively small neighborhood, so I don't know whether you could fit more restaurants in there. The interesting thing to watch will be what kind of food is on sale there. So already you have this jostling between, I mean, old Roman cuisine per se. You've got these these old uh historic Roman restaurants there, Jewish Roman cuisine. I think that there's a possibility that Jewish Roman cuisine may become even more of a trend in the former ghetto because I think people are on the lookout. Romans and sort of tourists in the know, for want of a better phrase, are on the lookout for dishes that are sort of maybe less um, less popular um, parts of the Roman canon. So this is sort of the par- what, Mar- what Massimo Montanari calls the paradox of, uh, of globalization, where actually where you have this restaurant environment where you can go and eat anything, sushi, burgers, kebabs, all the rest, uh, people actually, as a sort of reaction to that, also then look deeper in their own cultural tradition uh, to sort of dig out the recipe books and preserve 
the things that they feel to be at risk by globalization. So I wonder whether there may be a sort of further diversification of food in the former ghetto. So these, the, the Middle Eastern restaurants will, of course, stay there and they'll be very popular. But I think also re restaurants are starting to put uh, older and more traditional uh, Jewish Roman dishes on their menus too. Which I reckon will probably make the former ghetto an even greater attraction for tourists and Romans alike. My thanks to Sean Weyer and Michaela Pavoncello for sharing their experiences of the foodification of Rome's former ghetto. I'll put a link to Sean's paper in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com and to Michaela's website, jewishroma.com. She offers really good walking tours and a bunch of other services. I highly recommend her. I got a really lovely review from a listener this week, and quite apart from helping other people find the show, it really keeps me going to know that you like what I'm doing. Maybe you'd like to leave a review? The transcript, made possible by everyone who supports the show, might be a little late this week, but it will be at eatthispodcast.com as soon as possible. And that's all for now. So, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.